Welcome to L'Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. This week's guest is Eric Lowe. Eric Lowe began training in HEMA in New York City um, with the New York Historical Fencing Association. He's been a principal instructor at Swordwind Historical Swordsmanship in Charlotte, North Carolina for six years. Eric has medaled in cutting tournaments with both one and two-handed swords, uh, form tournaments and side sword tournaments in East Coast competitions. He's also the author of The Use of Medieval Weaponry, a survey of medieval HEMA traditions and the weapons they teach. Eric, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Hey, so um, it's great to have you. Um, tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write uh, The Use of Medieval Weaponry. So the book was kind of a funny story, um, and it uh, it goes back to an offhand comment that uh, I think Mike Edelson made on Facebook uh, years and years ago. The you know the the HEMA Facebook um, kind of presence is actually much larger than the HEMA practitioner presence. So uh, you get a lot of people coming on to uh, HEMA Facebook groups and asking kind of you know very earnest beginner questions uh, about how HEMA works and different sources and um, you know all the all the sorts of things that people kind of weapons nerds uh, wonder about in our in our spare time. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, back in, I guess, 2015 or so um, when Mike Edelson and a couple of a couple other of the kind of like um, what I think of as the previous generation of HEMA instructors uh, just said, you know, they were getting kind of burnt out answering the same questions over and over and over again and wondering when the next generation of fencers was going to step up and start answering these things. And um, Mike was my, uh, Mike was my grand, uh, my grand teacher, uh, the, the teacher of Tristan Zukowski, who's um, the guy that I started training under. And that comment just really kind of struck me that you know, when, when do we start kind of educating people about um, historical arts and kind of step up as fencers in our own right who know things and can, you know, uh, educate the public. Um, and that, that's always been a part of uh, what I wanted, what I wanted Swordwind to be. Uh, and we've, you know, we do that at public demonstrations um, and that sort of thing. But I kind of took that moment as a challenge to pick up part of the internet and, um, you know, kind of post myself there as, as the friendly neighborhood HEMA person. So I, I started writing uh, about HEMA on Quora.com and uh, a couple of years ago, out of the blue, uh, this UK publisher contacted me uh, and said, hey, we've been reading your stuff on Quora uh, and we think it's really great and we'd love it if you would write a book for us about that sort of thing. And so I immediately said, no, I'm not qualified. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, a, a couple of my students um, 
talked me down off that ledge uh, and then said, what are you talking about? They specifically, you know, um, you know, they specifically came to you because of, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the voice I was writing in, I think, uh, as much as the, uh, as much as the content. Um, and so I, so I, I took them up on the offer uh, and then when I sat down to try and think, okay, so what is a book length kind of, what is HEMA uh, text look like? Um, ultimately what I settled on was um, back in the late nineties when I was in high school, uh, I was trying to do research on you know, it wasn't called HEMA at the time, but I was uh, I was writing a role-playing game system and I was trying to figure out how do weapons and armor actually work. And, and I thought, you know, I still get those, we still get those same questions from those same kinds of people uh, wondering those same kinds of things. And there aren't really any super accessible resources for kind of bringing the HEMA... Uh, knowledge base outside of the fencing community. You know, we've we've got we've got the Wicked Hour, and if you were uh, skilled in reading this particular kind of primary source, then you can do that. Um, there are a number of people that have written really good um, kind of how-to, uh, you know, kind of how-to interpretive books on particular sources. Um, or particular traditions, but those aren't very useful to you unless you're actually, you know, a martial artist. Yeah. Uh, and so my book was trying to take everything we know as, as HEMA fencers and make it accessible to people who want to know this stuff, but don't want to put in years of practice, uh, practicing a martial art, just so they can understand the stuff that we already know. Yeah, so it's, it's actually really funny because um, after reading the book, I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, my God, like had somebody written this book five years ago when I was, had started HEMA, I don't know if I would have actually gotten into HEMA. <laughs> because here's the thing, Eric, like the whole reason I got into HEMA is because I was trying to write a historical fiction novel. Uh -huh. so I was writing about the Theban hegemony and Epaminondas and Pelopidas and um and so i got to this point in the book where epaminondas uh ends up getting humbled and essentially demoted down to the ranks uh uh from because he's sort of uh subverted by higher government powers right uh -huh. and so uh i was writing this scene where you know he's this very experienced military person who has to go back and essentially like reintegrate himself in the basic levels of training of a you know a theban hoplite and i'm sitting there thinking to myself you know what i'm writing this and i have no idea how to use a sword i have no <laughs> idea how to use a spear and i'm like my god like i need to learn how to do this so i was like okay well maybe i should just learn fencing and then so i went on a, a you know a google search and i looked for you know just fencing regular fencing and i came across the triangle sword guild and the rest is history but <clears throat> That is, I had no idea that's how you got started. It is, yeah. Had this book existed, I, I probably <laughs> would have read the book and I would have been like, my, this is, okay, well, you know, this is something that I could at least develop a framework off of, but 
yeah so that's so funny you know it it got started all i could find was arma chapters in other parts of the country uh and i just sort of assumed okay i guess this doesn't exist where i live um and it turns out that i went to school within striking distance of uh puck curtis who is uh you know uh for anybody who doesn't know a a fabulous uh destreza maestro um you know he, he one of not not in the bolognese tradition but one of the best uh, you know, kind of side sword fencers in, in a tradition I know. And turns out I was dancing at Stanford with some of his students. <laughs> uh, like, and I had just put, put, I had just put that historical swordsmanship thing out of my mind as something as a maybe one day thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I spent, I spent 13 years in the Bay area, not learning from puck. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm doing a classics degree uh, and getting all into hoplite combat, and nice. uh, and and now we just finished at Swordwind uh, a kind of a, a series on uh, partisan and rotella, which is not exactly hoplite, but you know, kind of 16th century Italian people cosplaying. Yeah. Uh, hoplite combat essentially that's how it frames out isn't it, isn't it? <laughs> um and and so we've got I've, I've kind of like taken this circuitous route past hema to uh you know for a long time i i thought okay one day i'm gonna just kind of buy myself a panoply and kind of try and figure this stuff out um and now here i am in Hema, you know, doing the closest thing we've got to documented sword, uh, spear and shield, uh, which is, which is crazy. And I, I didn't know that that's how you got started. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, ancient history has always been my primary passion. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I also find it really fascinating too. I think, uh, Marazzo's dagger would work really well with the Xiphos. Ah uh, yes, yes. You, I see. You also have had these thoughts. Is <laughs> if every time I read it, I, I think about fighting with a short Xiphos, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, this works. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. One. <laughs> um. So, you know, you you really do touch on every weapon system. I mean, this is probably one of the most comprehensive books that I've read. Um, in terms of just somebody really kind of unloading uh, all the knowledge that they've gained from HEMA. Um, and it is incredibly diverse in the way that you approach it um, in that you are talking from the perspective of KDF, uh, the Bolognese tradition, uh, Destreza, um, Bulgar Destreza, and um, Fiore. And, um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, how how did you come to have such a broad range of knowledge? Um, so I, I, you know, I think like a lot of American, I, I think like a lot of American HEMA fencers, I started in KDF, mm -hmm. um, and as far as I can tell, um, you know, kind of the the modern tradition of what gets taught is basically an accident of history uh, that has to do with what was translated when. Uh, and, you know, we, we learn from what our teachers have had access to uh, yeah. as much as kind of 
you know, making a conscious choice. Um, but one of the, I, I have to say that maybe, uh, so, you know, back to, back to that Stanford tradition, uh, back to that Stanford experience. Um, by the time I started HEMA in New York, um, I had been doing um, Western Europe and uh, North American social dance for uh, over a decade, uh, which is basically, and, he, and so, like vintage social dance is basically the HEMA of the dance world. Uh, we're taking um, we're taking period dances and trying to reconstruct them from uh, from period sources with kind of um, various modern um, various modern uh, music and dress, but kind of like a, a, a period ethos, essentially asking ourselves, okay, once upon a time, uh, cool teenagers did this voluntarily for fun. What was so cool about it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of used to this idea that if you want to get at a historical physical practice, uh, you need to read what you need to read widely you know, there's going to be different opinions from different authors, uh, and you're trying to get at, you know, um, really kind of just apply the historical method to, um, you know, something that is, looks like a particular tradition, but when you zoom in on it is less of a, uh, you know, is messier than it looks. Um, and so that was, um, and KDF, I think, is particularly conducive to that because the KDF manuscripts we have from the 15th century are just uh, kind of defiantly incomplete. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and they're not trying to be complete. They're, you know, so-and-so's teaching on this particular part of fence, uh, you know, of the fencing art. Um, and people would, you know, it's, it's a was apparently a KDF tradition to kind of collect various masters writings on different topics into a single, you know, a, a single book. Um, and so as, as I was kind of buckling down to teach KDF, when I moved down here to Charlotte, uh, I realized that there was, there was a lot being unsaid in the text that I was, I was teaching from. And so uh, I just started kind of trying to read around and see, all right, what other, you know, what other physical practice practices uh, did this exist contemporaneously with, uh, you know, what other ideas are, uh, you know, kind of in the air. Um, and there's there's a lot of if I had started, you know, if I had started with a tradition with a with, with a with a manuscript with a book that was more complete i don't know that i would have done that um you know i mean uh people who really stutter uh really study uh yoki meyer have the benefit of a book that really is kind of like fencing a to z according to this guy and fiorists have uh you know a, a similar sort of luxury but in the kdf world we did not <laughs> and so yeah. You know, so I, I started reading around partially for that reason. Um, 
And then a couple of years into starting Swordwind, I just informed everybody that we were going to be doing Bolognese, whether they liked it or not. And, um, you know, and, and the reason for that was completely selfish. Yeah. I, um, all the way back to, um, all the way back to my very first explorations in Hema, um, I kind of fell in love with the side sword just as, as an object. Um, the, I, it, it just fits my aesthetic preferences for swords. It's, uh, it's not too, not too fancy. Uh, it, it can still lop a man's arm off. Uh, you know, there's a certain kind of like elegant length to it. Uh, and so when I was kind of dreaming in late high school of the weapons I would want to learn one day, it was the long sword and the side sword. Um, and we didn't, uh, we didn't do side sword at, um, uh, at NIFA. And so once we kind of had Swordwind established, I realized, you know what? I could do that. We could do that. I could make people do that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you want. I mean, it's. Yeah. Uh, and so I started looking around at, you know, the various side sword traditions. Um, Degrassi, Giacomo uh, 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 Degrassi was the first side sword author I had ever encountered. So I, you know, I thought maybe we'll do him. Uh, and then I thought maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do Meyer because he's at least in the KDF tradition and, and he also does side sword. Yeah. Um, and as I was kind of just looking around at who does what and asking the side swordists I knew, you know, what traditions did you study? What options are there? I came across Bolognese um, and I was just taken with the enormous variety of this system. You know, like uh, most other side sword systems teach sword alone, maybe sword and dagger, sword and buckler, and if you're lucky, sword and cloak. Uh, and Bolognese does so much more than that in so many more contexts than that. And I thought, well, if I'm going to make people do side sword, we're going to go to the side sword people. And, you know, so this was completely geographically, linguistically, um, outside of, you know, what we had been doing, what I had been doing. Um, but I, that's how we got started in Bolognese. Um, one of my assistant instructors, uh, after doing Bolognese for a little while, kind of fell in love with uh, Vulgar Destreza. Uh, and so he started teaching that, which meant that I was uh, having conversations with him. Um, and Bolognese, particularly because we were essentially doing it um, you know, in sort of a self-taught way at first. I mean, obviously we were corresponding with other practitioners around the world, but at the time there was nobody down here in the Piedmont area that was doing uh, really side sword fencing at all, um, let alone in this particular tradition. Um, that kind of just fed my, fed my hunger to read more about, you know, what other fencing is going on in Italy at the time, uh, what other authors, uh, touch on this sort of thing. Uh, when Pietro Monti's uh, Collectania uh, came out in a couple of translations, uh, I, you know, I kind of jumped on that because uh, he's in some ways, you know, kind of standing outside of any of the other uh, fencing traditions we can, we can document. Yeah, but 
impartial approach. Yeah, you know, in a, in, a, in a lot of other ways, he's it's almost more valuable to get that kind of third party perspective on weapons and how they're used. Um, you know, and I mean, he he writes not so much as a as an instructor as just a, a fighting man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that I think that so I just was kind of trying to take in as much as I could perspective and context wise. And that happened to position me pretty well uh, when Eon, uh, when Eon books came calling and said, you know, do you, yeah. do you, you want to write a book for us? Yeah, no, I mean, the, I mean, it, it really sets up a, a beautiful um, sort of a landscape of the overall. Um, I mean, I, I know that you and I have had conversations in the past where we've talked about, um, the missing parts of KDF and how mm -hmm. sometimes because of the way that, uh, especially in the Bolognese system, that it approaches wide play in the way yeah. that, that it, it fills in gaps and how the fight is approached and really kind of uh, colors in the Zufecton where mm -hmm. before, you know, there's a little bit of mystery around that. It's not necessarily treated as much uh, in the KDF texts. And so... Right like studying both of those, you can have a richer understanding of how that approach to measure um, is done and then executed. Yeah, so it's it's funny, um, you know, like a lot of East, like a lot of American HEMA schools, we were, we were a KDF school and people were pretty skeptical when I said, we're gonna do this Bolognese thing. Um, and by the way, they have basically kata, I mean, long kata. Uh, and, you know, I got a lot of, um, not pushback exactly, but just skepticism about like, why would we need to know or practice any of that? You know, I think a lot of, especially people, American HEMA fences with prior martial arts experience, um, a lot of them come from traditions that frankly look a lot more like Bolognese, um, what I think Bolognese looked like in kind of historical practice and came to HEMA because it feels more practical and, you know, kind of like straightforward and right to the point. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. And I think we found here at Swordwind um, really practicing Bolognese makes your KDF less stupid. Um, the, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a, a good remedy for some of the kind of um, well-intentioned, but I think in artful approaches you sometimes see in KDF, modern KDF practitioners. You know, I, I assume this was not true of historical KDF fencers, yeah. um, but oftentimes people, especially people that don't really only focus on the 15th century KDF texts, um, you know, basically don't fight until they're already in, uh, you know, in Giocostretto, where their manuscripts have a lot to say. Um, and, it, you know, it, so I, we are, um, uh, we are just about to start actually teaching some, some of our fencers who have been brought up now, like completely in the Bolognese tradition, um, a little more of, um, a little more of KDF, theory about like how you work at the half sword because i do think that those texts have a, a a very useful model for how you select the the prese 
you know, the prison that you execute. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't say that this is, I, I wouldn't say that I think this is a, um, a failure of historical Bolognese fencers, but Bolin, surviving Bolognese texts, I think kind of approach the half sword as just kind of a Rolodex of techniques. You know, um, you know, here's the first through 26th, uh, you know, like straight A at the half sword, true edge to true edge. And now let's learn false edge to false edge. But there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot said in the text about how do I decide what to pick? You know, when should I execute straight at number four as opposed to straight at number six? Is it just kind of, you know, personal preference is it whatever i can remember in the moment and and to some extent i think the answer is yes you know yeah um whatever you can the technique you can remember at at the right time is better than a better technique that you're gonna take another two seconds to remember but <laughs> to, to that point though i i think that's one of the things hopefully that I think is going to, we're going to start to see a shift with, because I think with the anonymous Bolognese in particular, um, he really highlights and some of his longer plays, mm -hmm. like, this is, this is how you're doing Gioco Larga. This is how you're getting into Gioco Stretta. And this is how you're performing the press. So a lot right. of times he actually gives you that full landscape. So you get more of a context of, Hey, this is when this press mm -hmm. actually, sense rather than just reading you know Marazzo's uh third book of sword and small buckler and applying it to all the weapons like he says they right can. and you're just like okay well at what point am I going to throw my sword over this guy's shoulder you know? right <laughs> yeah uh and, and and speaking of which uh, that's that's one of the things I've really um enjoyed about having you guys in in North Carolina um, and all of the work that you've done with Marazzo's uh, second assault for sword for the two-handed sword, um, because I think that also you know gives it, in a two-handed sword context some of those you know the end here's the entry, yeah. um, and so you can start to infer a little more than just well I know twelve techniques and <laughs> I don't know yeah. I've always kind of been partial to number six. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah yeah i mean because that's usually what ends up happening right like i mean for me for a long time it, it's funny because i always wanted to work very progressively through Murato's two sword stuff or two mm -hmm. not two sword but two-handed sword um and i i read you know when you read Murato, he says that if somebody understands Gioco larga and they don't understand Joko strata or at least if they don't understand mm -hmm. the concept of a wide play narrow play um that the person who understands both will chase the, the wide play fencer across mm -hmm. the cell right and yeah. for the longest time like a lot of my fencing especially when i fight really good fighters like marcus uh lewis mm -hmm. um has always been just like him chasing me around and just <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i didn't have that i didn't have that part i was missing i was missing the second assaulty um, mm -hmm. and really being able to apply that, but getting into it and really learning to understand it has made me a much more dynamic fencer. Um, yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, you, so uh, funny, you should mention Marazzo. 
um, because I've sort of, uh, I, I consciously avoided Murat so early on in our Bolognese program um, because, you know, I mean, I, I dipped my toe into the water early on um, enough to say, nope, I'm not ready for this. Uh, you know, it, it felt like um, because of the way he writes, um, you know, and there are the, these kind of those kind of maddening passages where he's speaking to his son and he says something along the lines of like, uh, you know, I'm not going to explain that because you and I have done it a million times before. <laughs> and I'm like, but I haven't. Yeah. Uh, but also just, you know, the endless forms. Uh, I wasn't ready to kind of pull the pull those pearls off the string as it were and kind of break them down into what they were um it, it felt like uh it felt at first like reading marazzo was like reading the dungeon master's guide without ever having read any other books <laughs> and yeah. like you know and i was like none of this has any context for me oh my god well you know and and uh, this is something that I brought up last week with Stephen um, when we were talking about um, some of his preferences in terms of different masters and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But I, I really feel like Manciolino and Delagoke provide a really great foundation to get into the more complex form-oriented or, uh, mm -hmm. or uh, passage of play, if you will, uh, oriented texts like the Anonimo and Marazzo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they give you the individual techniques and then you can read the Anonimo and you can be like, okay, I've seen that individual technique in Delagoke. Um, and you can pull out two or three different individual techniques and see right. how they together in the course of a fight. And that's where you get the flow, right? Like yeah. um, Delagoke and Manchilino, their virtue is that they teach you how to do the techniques, what to do with your feet and your footwork and everything like that to make sure that you're mm -hmm. changing the line. And then you learn how to flow between those techniques by reading Murato and uh, the Anonymous. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Um, we, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always funny kind of orienting new students to the way that we, uh, the way we bring people through Bolognese because we start with Dalagokie, who's pretty clearly the, you know, the oldest of the big 16th century four. Yeah. Um, but he's, I feel like he's so good at kind of explicating the theoretical foundations of the system. And then you can go back to the older, you know, and historically more famous authors uh, that, that treat all of the, the wonderful variety that Bolognese has, um, you know, and then you're ready to understand because you'll read, you know, the, the form will say, okay, do this. Um, you know, and Marazzo or, or the Anonimo or even, you know, Manchilino in his form stuff won't, ex won't say what the other person is doing. Right. You know, they give you as student like three moves to do. Yeah. And if you didn't, if we didn't have Delagoque, um, you know, the first part of Manchilino for context, I feel like you would, you'd just be waving your sword around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's more sword dancing versus actually like having that sense of enemy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right in that, you know, you have to, that is what makes those basic plays really fantastic is you know exactly what your opponent is doing. And Manchilino even talks about, you know, 
these form these assaults are meant to be done with two people and yet he only gives you one half of the form (laughs) and so you know i mean it's a it's a fun exercise to try and kind of infer what the other person's side should be but you know if you're ever going to learn anything from it you really need to be able to say why am i doing this you know and like and not only what is my opponent giving me as kind of initial stimulus but you know with the second and the second and third moves in the exchange what is kind of what's kind of the bolognese mindset for how my opponent would likely respond to this second move to this third move you know and that's uh you know that's that that's what if, if we didn't have that i feel like these books would be you know easily 50 percent less useful than they are yeah Completely agree. So um, I want to talk about something that's really interesting that I kind of picked up on um, when I was reading your book. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so you talk about uh, the use of the buckler to protect the hand. Um, and, and one of your asides, uh, you, you give this, uh, this quoted text where you say, uh, the, buck, the buckler's ability to protect the sword hand is likely an important answer to the question of why European swords did not develop complex hilts until the Renaissance. Um, Later on, you could say uh, fencing with an unaccompanied one-handed sword is a topic to which medieval treatises devote almost no attention. Uh, with one important exception, it appears to be a modern invention. By the 16th century, we begin to see references to the fact that bucklers are not always socially or legally acceptable. And what I what I kind of inferred from that, and something that I think is really interesting, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, not necessarily debate, but question as to how old the anonymous Bolognese is. Mm. And um, when I read that, I was like, wow, you know what? I wonder I wonder if we can use this and place this um, as a way to say, maybe that's why the anonymous treats the single-handed sword the way that it does, where you get 450 plays uh, with the single-handed sword. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you still get you still get a lot with the sword and buckler and the sword and targa, mm-hmm. but you have 450 plays because this is somebody who's like, okay, well, this is the way that we used to teach the tradition where mm-hmm. you know Mantellino and Morazzo treat the sword and buckler as the core foundation of their system. Right. Seems like from the anonymous author, we see the shift where now the single-handed sword is the core of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think- and definitely it's definitely the core of of uh, Gokie's text as well yeah yeah so i you know i mean people the anonimo i think is is really fascinating trying to date the anonimo i think is a really fascinating thing because it's on on the other hand it's also the only bolognese text that has um poleaxe and armor mm-hmm. you know and it's specifically poleaxe and specifically in armor in what feels like a very kind of you know uh, 14th and 15th century kind of knightly dueling sort of context. Um, whereas meanwhile, uh, Morasso in the 1530s is saying, eh, the Ranka, the Halberd and the Polax, they're all basically the same. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, uh, you can do all the same things, you know, just whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and he's not talking about armor, um, and meanwhile, Manciolino is talking about, you know, in his introduction, 
seems to have this idea that armor is something you negotiate. You know, if you're taller than him, then you then and you get to choose the weapons. Then he recommends you specifically choose armor from the waist down. <laughs> and if you're shorter than your opponent, you specifically say armor from the waist up, because this is, you know, what's what single combat is turning into in the 16th century. This kind of negotiated thing. Um, and so, you know, there are, I know there are some people who are of the opinion that the um, Polax and armor section of the Anonimo kind of drags its date uh, earlier in time, you know, maybe all the way back to the 15th century um, when single combat was less of a negotiation and more of kind of a performance of knightly status. And, you know, everybody kind of, you, you don't, you don't have this, sort of thing that Marazzo and Manchilino talk about where you you get to negotiate the weapons. Instead, we're knights and we rock up in our, you know, with our, our most badass horses, with our best armor, with our, you know, our most knightly weapons. And that's just, this is the way that we do single combat. There's no negotiation because the whole point of the process is to sort of perform our, our status as, you know, warrior aristocrats. Um, and on the other hand, there's this, you know, um, there's the single sword focus, which is uh, fascinating to me. <laughs> and I, I think that, uh, you know, and we have people like, uh, we have people like Delagokie in the 1570s um, also talking about the, you know, kind of the tactics of dueling negotiation. Um, and Dalagokie straight up says that uh, it makes you look the most honorable and the most brave and the most confident in your own cause if you choose to fight uh, with an unaccompanied sword in your shirt sleeves. You know, kind of like the, the, the complete opposite of kind of the, the knightly or what used to be the knightly ideal of single combat. Um, so, you know... It's um, my own feeling is that that kind of primacy of the unaccompanied sword in what seems to be a an unarmored context is um, in the Anonimo is probably I find it easier to believe that that places the Anonimo closer to Dalagokie than say to like Darty himself. Um, and that perhaps the Anonimo is simply preserving this older kind of knightly Polax tradition than to imagine that the knightly Polax tradition places the Anonimo very early in time and, and that anonymous author is just decades ahead of everyone else in sort of imagining the, the importance that the unaccompanied, unarmored single sword will have. Um, and I am willing to admit that, um, you know, by the late 15th century, you have German sources that are definitely talking about unarmored single sword combat uh, with the Langesmesser. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not like nobody in Europe is doing this. But I can't think of anybody else in Italy that is doing it. Um, and the... And I think it, it it would. I think you you also have to grapple with the fact that uh, 
Marasso and Manchialino in the 1530s just very much do not treat the unaccompanied sword as kind of the foundation of the system. So if there was kind of this, um, if indeed the, the Anonimo is, predates them, then you have to answer the question of why did they go back to, you know, what, what socio-legally seems to be the older tradition of sword and buckler as the foundation of their system. Um, and the, so the, you know, this is all admitted, admitting that this is all very conjectural. Oh yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and we're, we, yeah. we just, we don't have the evidence to know for sure. To me, the Anonimo's focus, on, to me, the Anonimo feels post Murazzo, um in its focus on single sword and, uh, you know, and I think it's just kind of preserving this older, um, specifically knightly, specifically knightly dueling Polax tradition, um, which is a really fascinating artifact. I mean, you know, the anonymous is doing things that is doing things with the Polax that Marasso is not, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and certainly stuff that Manciolino is not. And you can kind of, you can see the armored context there in a way that the 1530s authors just don't seem to be much more kind of agnostic about. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I find it much easier to believe that it's preserving an older tradition than that it is kind of prefiguring something that nobody else in the, nobody else in Bologna is going to hit upon until the 1570s. Right, yeah. And I mean, even Dalagoke, I mean, I seriously doubt Dalagoke ever fought with a lance on a horse, but he still <laughs> right. dedicates an entire chapter or a book in his treatise to jousting. And you know that it's it's strictly from a sports standpoint. I mean, the one thing mm -hmm. about the anonymous in his uh, poleaxe and armor is that it's very clear that that is not playful fencing by any means. Right, <laughs> right. You're not going to stab somebody in the balls when they're your friend. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and it's not like we haven't seen other Bolognese authors preserving earlier traditions as well. You know, I mean, um, the fact that Marazzo and Manciolino have such have such similar uh, sword and small buckler assaults really suggests to me that these are kind of the ancestral forms that have you know they received from their teacher who received them from their teacher. Um, and I know like, uh, you guys have been arguing, um, kind of from the beginning that Marazzo's two-handed sword feels a lot like a longsword tradition that he's kind of expanded to the lar slightly larger two-handed swords of his day. Um, and the more two-handed sword work we've done here in Charlotte, the more I am convinced by that view. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, other people seem to be, I, I get the impression that in the 16th century, the Bolognese fencing of Marazzo and Manciolino and the Anonimo and Dalagokie would have looked very old fashioned, you know, uh, compared to people, you know, like what people like Agrippa were doing. Um, and that's, that's actually, I mean, I make this argument in the book, that's, I think, why one can justify speaking of 16th century Bolognese as a medieval tradition, 
you know, notwithstanding the fact that um, when these people are publishing the Renaissance in, you know, in Italy is in full swing. Yeah. And I mean, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, sword and, not necessarily Sword and Buckler, but Sword and Rotella, Sword and Shield mm -hmm. um, was actually something that the, um, the Lombard League used as one of their sort of primary frameworks to develop their their uh, battlefield tactical formations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's see if I can pull a source out for that. But um, I, I'm vaguely aware of, of that being something that could be a traditional or sort of systemic thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and certainly you see, you know, imperial armies uh, during the Italian wars experimenting with the, the, the Rotolero concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's Art of War, right? Which you know, he he essentially says that, you know, I think what one third of your entire fighting force should be uh, Rotoleros, right? Uh, they can go and counter pikes, right? You know, and uh, open question. I, I I think it's an interesting military history question how successful that ultimately was, but like, you know, but 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 definitely people are doing it um yeah. and for that matter i mean as as funny as it is to kind of make fun of uh bolognese partisan and rotella as cosplaying ancient greeks which sure. you know it wasn't not that but <laughs> um you know but Morasso also like does talk in his uh, partisan and rotella section about using the that weapon combination in skirmish you know, I mean, it's, um, and I think the, the Rotolero concept also, um, I mean, we see that used as kind of uh, in, a, in a skirmish context as well, or in kind of uh, rough terrain that's not very conducive to close order fighting, like in the new world. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not hard for me to imagine that Morasso is, uh, is being serious about that, that, you know, this is an important part of a modern army maybe not kind of the core of your battle line but you you know uh you this for uh for foraging for uh for foraging for skirmishing for you know kind of what we i guess would call today like kind of light infantry stuff this is an important weapon set mm -hmm. um and which is also one of the things i really enjoy about the bolognese tradition that they, you know, they go all the way from um, teaching stuff like sword, teaching stuff like cloak and dagger, specifically because nobody picks cloak and dagger as their dueling weapon set. And it's something you can kind of spring on your opponent as something they probably don't practice, but you do. <laughs> um, all the way to, you know... Uh, maybe I want to be a professional soldier because the 16th century is a good time for being a professional soldier, you know, and I want to learn military weapons in a, you know, in a military way. And, you know, I, I love that they kind of go all, all the way from the duel to not just the battlefield, but parts of the battlefield that modern people tend not to think about all that much when we think about, you know, kind of 16th century warfare. Um, yeah. In fact, Palladini, um, you know, who's uh, a little outside of kind of my, what I think of as my period, but a Bolognese fencing master, 
does specifically say you want to learn this stuff so that when you show up to the mercenary recruiters booth, you can. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what you were looking up. Yeah. I just pulled out Palladini. (laughs) I was like, man, this is, you know, uh, that's exactly what I was going to get into. Yeah. He he literally tells you to know how to use every single style of arm, uh, including pole arms. And like when he's talking about the halberd, he says, you know, just in case somebody ever hands you a halberd and tells you to go protect the doorway, you know how to use a halberd. Right. It's just like, okay, all right, well, that's that makes practical sense, right? Yeah. Because he gives another sort of um, anecdote, which uh, I thought related really interesting to your section in the book on on fighting with two swords. Um, at the end of his two sword section, he talks about how uh, if if you're ever in a situation uh, where you're fighting multiple opponents and you need to fight with two swords, he says you should always have your second carry a sword. Yes. And you their sword, and then you can fight with two swords. You know, uh, so um, so uh, the tradition, the, the the translation of Palladini, you're uh, we're, we're both thinking of, came out after I was done with the book, and I was so mad that. <laughs> That I didn't have access to it because uh, up until Palladini, I like Palladini is the first two sword author I can think of who gives any insight into how the heck do you have two swords? <laughs> like, you know, are you just walking around with two of these things on your belt? Like, who does that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet, and yet, like, it also um, it, it dovetails so neatly with. Um, with Dalagokie's explanation of the Kodalonga uh, metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Bolognese authors are using, you know, Kodalonga this and that, uh, you know, apparently as early as we have Bolognese authors. Um, and Dalagokie explains that, like, you know, this has nothing to do with anatomical tales. The metaphor is if you see somebody walking around town, with a long tail, meaning like an entourage, don't mess with that person because they have many ways to offend you. Uh, you know, I mean, like anybody walking around with an entourage is an important dude and you don't want to like, you don't want to piss them off. Yeah. And and I read that in Palladini and I thought, oh my God, like this is absolutely, I mean, you know, I have an entourage yeah. and some page in my entourage is carrying a sword um, because they're, you know, they're too young or too uh, ill-trained to use it themselves. And then I can, you know, if stuff kicks off, I can just say, page, give me my second sword. (laughs) And and I thought that makes so much more sense. It's it's cool though. Right. Because yeah. Like, I mean, you think about, Hey, that actually works in context. Like you can, you can, sort of build out a, a really interesting story of a historical framework of, of how those those situations could arise um and I, I think it's it's great i mean it's it's one of my favorite things about paladini is he gives that really awesome just kind of obscure uh sort of real world advice that i think yeah out. yeah and that you know some other uh kind of adjacent traditions like um escrima comun have just in spades, you know, uh, uh, Godinho talks about, you know, the sort of practical stuff all the time. And it's great to kind of 
have that in a in an Italian context. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It also reminded me of, you know, the um, this is going to sound silly, but it reminded me of Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, you know, who is not that far not that far removed from from these authors. Exactly. You know, and writing uh, writing Romeo and Juliet. And he doesn't think anything of the idea that, um, you know, well-to-do aristocrats would get into street brawls. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I mean, like, so. And I think, I mean, you pointed it out in the book where you said, you know, we, we almost need to get rid of this notion that every fight that would have been fought was going to be a fair fight. Right. Like, if, if, you could, if you could leverage an advantage of more people or whatever it was then you were going to do that you know i mean especially if uh, you know you're looking for revenge or something like that or right to settle some sort of a debt yeah and you know and like we 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 see other we we see this kind of beginning to be reflected in our uh certainly we see it in in you know in uh in codinho we see it you know we see kind of an awareness of it in um uh, in Palladini, I think it's Jacob uh, Monesi in the six, 1630s, who says that a uh, you know another Italian gentleman who's not really a fencer but kind of commenting on the commenting on fencing, who says that um, you know a fencer needs to know how to fight in four contexts, uh, you know, in an actual duel, um, in when you're just basically kind of showing off in you know with play swords. Um, to, to demonstrate your knowledge um, and and then and also um, in a hostile in a hostile fencing saw you know when people are not necessarily going to be nice to you and you need to be able to kind of make your blows tell um, in you know to, to an audience that is not necessarily going to give you the benefit of the doubt um, and in the plaza you know when you just might get jumped. <laughs> Right. And I think it's really fascinating that even in the 17th century, you know, which you might otherwise think of as kind of like we're very much into the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, code duello kind of world. Even then, people are saying, no, this this is a thing that happens. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the rules may exist, but that doesn't mean that everyone follows them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um Let's let's turn a little bit away from the book and let's kind of get into you a little bit. Um, I know you were talking about NIFA and, and how that was sort of uh, the foundation of your uh, fencing, which is the New York Historical uh, Fencing Association. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, tell me about how you really I, how you got started with the Bolognese system. Like, and what what I mean, I know we kind of touched on it mm -hmm. already. Um, where where did you get your start, and uh, what were some of the things that inspired you? Well, the um, so I you know um, the really what this goes back to um, is John Clements um, and that um, in many ways terrible red book he published on uh, the illustrated use of Renaissance uh, swords. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, um, I, I think like a lot of uh, modern HEMA people, there are a lot of negative things I could say about uh, about Clements, but I will give him this. Uh, if he hadn't written those books, 
I don't know that I would have made it to HEMA. Um, and I, I remember, you know, in, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, those books were pretty much all, almost all I could find. And he was talking about this thing he called the cut and thrust sword, and he just made it sound so incredibly cool. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a little bit longer and a little bit more slender, like a rapier. Um, it's got kind of the beginnings of a complex hilt. Uh, but unlike a rapier, you can still cut with it. It's, you know, it's meant for cutting. Uh, it can deliver powerful cuts. Um, it's not, it doesn't have kind of, you know, the whole kind of confection of steel around your hand, like a, you know, what we might think of as kind of a true rapier um, has. So there's a certain lightness to it as well. Um, and I was just really captivated by that description um, because of a, uh, a young adult series, fantasy series that I read in fifth grade um, by a woman named Tamara Pierce. Um, her Song of the Lioness books changed my life. I named my daughter after the protagonist. Um, and her sword is like, sounds like it sounds like the way Clemens describes the side sword. It's a little bit, it's a little bit more slender than everybody else's swords. Uh, it's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit longer. It's wickedly sharp. And I remember in fifth grade thinking that's the kind of sword I would want to have. Because uh, I've never been, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a small person, but I'm, I've never been a large one either. Uh, you know, I like my swords a little on the lighter side. Um, and, and so I, I, I read, I read Clements's book and I thought he's describing Alana's sword. Oh my God. I didn't know that this was like a real thing. Uh, so I promised myself like one day, if I ever like do this, if I ever do this like historical swordsmanship thing, like I'm going to learn how to use that kind of sword. And uh, when, when Swordwind had been established for a couple of years, I kind of, one, one of the things that I, I uh, frankly, uh, I, I think we're really good at is teaching people how to do HEMA. Um, you know, I, it's really important to me that my students not just learn kind of the physical skills of the uh, of the art, but learn uh, how do you pull those skills out of books, so that if somebody wants to do something else, um, like my assistant Ryan, you know, if he wants to do um, Godinho, you know, he comes out like people come out of my school with those skills. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of realized this is what we, you know this was something we were we were pretty good at. Um, and I realized, you know, we could, I could take advantage of that too. I could <laughs> decide, Hey, remember that sword that I've always wanted to learn how to use that we didn't use at NIFA. Hey, I could learn that. Um, and, you know, and so that was kind of the, frankly, that was the impetus. I read a book in fifth grade. It changed my life. And I said, I'm going to learn how to use that sword one day. <laughs> and the, um, uh, you know, but we, but we had a couple of false starts actually um, because the, you know, the first, the first thing anybody learns when they come across um, 
Bolognese is Marazzo. You know, I mean, he's the big famous Bolognese author, the guy who was quoted 200 years after his death with the, you know, what was it, something like 17 uh, reprintings of his book, um, you know, which in a pre-modern world is pretty impressive. Yeah, um, the equivalent of being a New York Times bestseller for, you know, the better part of a century. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so obviously I, you know, I picked up Marazzo and I thought, okay, like clearly this is the man to start with. Uh, and, you know, and it was it was a disaster because <laughs> um, not not only you know it was a disaster because not because we were doing forms but because we were doing forms before we were ready to uh, pull any context out of them you know I mean um, which was something really important to me as somebody who was trained in KDF in the knife tradition that we you know we learned by going through the Zettel glosses in order uh, because that was the order they were written down in. And we kind of just were willing to uh, take it on faith that there was a reason for that, but it was always important to us that we, you know, we're pulling kind of larger system principles out of those plays, not just doing them by rote, even though it was important to us as a matter of tradition to do them by rote. Um, you know, and so I, I jumped into Marazzo with that same kind of ethos, and I was like, okay, these are the, you know, these are the forms. We're going to do the forms by rote and just trust that there is deep learning to be had here. Um, and there is, I think, you know, and I, I love Marazzo's forms, and I think they are very deep. But at the time, we were just not ready to pull anything out of them at all. And it was just... Um, you know, we got to the point where people were saying, look, I don't feel like I'm learning a thing. Um, and so fortunately we, fortunately Dalagoke exists. <laughs> we were able to kind of pivot away from Marazzo for a while. Um, but if, you know, if Dalagoke didn't exist, uh, I don't know that our Bolognese program would have, uh, you know, would have, would have stuck. So one of the things uh, that when I when I think about Swordwind as a school, um, you guys do some of the best triangulation in the way that you train. Um, oh, thank you. Have one of the best cutting programs. I mean, all of your students are amazing cutters. They're not just really good at sparring mm -hmm. um, or knowledgeable in the text themselves, uh, but they, they actually know how to use sharp swords. Um, so talk a little bit about how that sort of developed um, and like, did that come from NIFA? Is that mm -hmm. something you just kind of really wanted to emphasize on your own? Um, because I think it's really valuable and it's a, something that I think a lot of, a lot of people could really stand to improve their overall understanding mm -hmm. of texts by exploring. So, you know, that came from a couple of places. Um, that also, to be perfectly honest, it started with Clements again. Um, uh, you know, and um, I'm I'm always a little wary of, uh, of 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 sharing this because I think there are a lot of um, I guess kind of very negative things about that man, and I don't want to uh, continue giving him a platform. But to, you know, but but to give credit where it's due, um, and in some ways I think at odds with his personal practice. Um, 
what he was writing about in those books, you know, and that was all I knew of him at the time was just these books exist. Um, he wrote very early on about the importance of doing test cutting in order to learn how the web, you know, to validate interpretations and kind of, uh, and, and vice versa, you know, um, not just wanting to, um, not just wanting your cutting to inform your, your technique interpretations, but wanting your technique interpretations to inform your cutting as well. Um, and that made a lot of sense to me as somebody who was, you know, coming at this from the perspective of, I want to learn how these weapons were actually used. You know, I, I was, obviously I wanted to know that, um, you know, if you move a sword in this way, it would actually cut or or stab somebody. <laughs> um, the um, and I and I sort of lucked into um, when I so nowadays there's more than one HEMA school in in New York City, uh, but when I moved there in 2013, uh, NIFA was the only game in town, unless you wanted to drive all the way out to Long Island, which I definitely did not. <laughs> um, not least because I didn't have a car. <laughs> so, you know, so I mean, I, I, I showed up to NIFA not because I've made any sort of kind of considered decision about the way they train or anything, but because they existed and it was that or nothing. Um, but I lucked into a program that was very, very uh, focused on not just test cutting, but understanding what test cutting was. Um, you know, if if I think there's one thing that Mike Edelson has, um, Mike Edelson being the the founder of NIFA, if there's one thing I think he has kind of given the HEMA community, it was not the practice of test cutting, but putting test cutting in a better context than it had existed before. Um, kind of fighting for the idea that um, Tatami is not actually a flesh simulator uh, you know, any more than ballistic gelatin is. Um, it's a, it's a calibrated, uh, it's a calibrated, uh, you know, fairly consistent test medium. Um, and our, our goal is not actually to sever the mat, you know, as, as fun as that is. <laughs> um, um, but, but, but our goal is to our goal is to read the remain read the remains of the cut and see what we could do better. In the same way that, like in you know, this this is the uh, this analogy doesn't come from me; it comes from Mike and it comes from Tristan. In the same way that, like, if you're into shooting arts, the goal is not to put the arrow into the target or put the bullet through the paper, uh, as fun as that can be. You know, the goal is to look at where your shot was placed to see what could I do better. Yeah, it's about consistency. I mean Right. Uh you know, it's it's about it's about checking yourself, um, seeing, you know, and it's about what can I do better, not because every single cut you throw is gonna be under ideal conditions, you know. I mean sure. probably if presumably virtually none of the cuts you would throw in a fight would be under ideal conditions. Yeah. But you know, I, so I, I, that's really interesting. I'm going to just kind of yeah, yeah. that for just a second. Um, because one of the things, like I've done historical archery where, um, you know, shooting with uh, horse bows. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I learned early on is the way that you develop 
accuracy with a bow is not to always hit the center circle. Mm-hmm. The first thing that you learn how to do is to group your arrows mm-hmm. because that's consistency and form. Right. And then you learn how to calibrate that to the point where you're, you're putting groups into the center of a target. Right. And I kind of feel like it's almost the same with cutting, you know, like when you're talking about making sure you're getting a 45 degree cut, mm-hmm. essentially what you're learning how to do is you're saying, okay, are your body mechanics calibrated correctly? Right. right. And then from there, you can start working on the dynamics of adding obscure targets or cutting different right. types and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I've, so very much, um, you know, and, um, one of the things I really valued about Tristan's teaching that I've tried to continue at Swordwind is this idea that um, the goal may not be to sever the mat, but the first thing we need to get you doing is not just severing the mat, but severing the mat cleanly. And then we can start making it smaller or learning how to do that from you know other positions or with less wind up or you know what have you. Um, so, because the, the goal here really isn't to, you know, the end goal is not to cut the target in two. The goal is to understand what makes the weapon tick. What do I need to do to operate this, this edge? Um, and if I put, you know, to, to kind of build up an intuitive sense of if I put different inputs into this, what would it make my edge do? Uh, you know, something we we tried to do at NIFA, um, and I, I tried to your triangulation point earlier, uh, you know, I tell people uh, that ultimately one of the things you want to take away from, um, from your test cutting practice is the ability to call yourself on your own, like on your own garbage, even in sparring, even in competition, mm-hmm. where like, you know, you may have landed the hit, the judges may have called it, but you know from the way the sword felt in your hand or from the way your body moved or what have you that that was not a good hit. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that's the level of kind of like, you know, uh, self-knowledge and tool knowledge we want to we want to be building here, not just cutting grass in two. Right. Um, so, so what I think is... I, something that I I think is really fascinating is you gave me some of the best advice that I've ever been given in terms of understanding cutting um, and body dynamics uh, and cutting with a spill-handed sword uh, because I had shared some videos with you Mm -hmm. uh, and asked for your advice and you gave me some corrections on my overall form and how I was using my hips and my shoulders and the angulation of my cuts, especially as they're coming from the left and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a really really fascinating and unique perspective on cutting with a single-handed sword that I don't think that I've ever heard from anybody else because you have done so much cutting and you are such good you are so good at cutting with a single-handed sword um so tell me a little bit about that if you could or, or just yeah well so you know um the um so I started. I started my side sword cutting. Um, but w- w- one of the one of the kind of values I took away from Nifa is that actually in an ideal world you would be starting uh, your first. The first sword you buy would be a sharp, uh, and you would learn to cut with that sword. Um, just throwing, just doing the cuts in your system, 
before you ever worry about application, you know, or technique interpretation, or let alone sparring. Um, in the same way that if you are into, you know, if you want to teach somebody to fight with a gun, the first thing you teach them is how to put the bullet into the target. You know, you're not, you don't start with, okay, here's how you assault a hill, or here's how you clear a room or something. And then later on, you're going to teach them how to like target shoot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and the, I guess kind of the reality of HEMA is oftentimes that that's not the order we do things. And I, I, you know, I'm, there are financial reasons for that. There are uh, marketing reasons for that. And I, I, I accept that, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile ethos to kind of try and pay heed to. So when I started doing side sword stuff, I thought, okay, well, what do I know about cutting from with two handed swords from NIFA? And let's see what that, you know, let's see what applies. Um, and a lot of it, uh, a lot, basically everything applies, which I think is like the, itself uh, sometimes kind of a struggle to get people to, uh, to acknowledge um, that, you know, um, and it actually ended up helping my two-handed cutting a lot too, because I started trying to cut with my offhand um, and I realized that I couldn't. And so I went back to my teachers and I said, why is, you know, why are my cuts so terrible? Um, and they said, you know what? That's probably actually a sign that when you cut with two hands, you're not actually cutting with two hands. You're cutting with your, your dominant hand and your offhand is maybe helping a little, but like if you were genuinely cutting with both hands together, you'd be able to do this you know, offhanded with just as well as you could with your forehand. And I, that was uh, a humbling revelation, but I have found it to be true. <laughs> um, but the, um, you know, but again, kind of my, the goal was to, uh, the goal was also to, from the beginning, you know, to understand, okay, how does the, how does the sword work? Um, and so the, everything I learned from NIFA about structure and, you know, kind of the way a cut should be thrown and the vectors that go into the sword, um, all of that I have found to be true with a one-handed sword, um, but almost more important has been the, what I think of as kind of the NIFA um, approach to what test cutting is because one of the things I think Bolognese does really explicitly, um, especially our later authors like Dalagoke, but even, even the 1530s people, uh, if you pay attention to kind of like what guard you're ending in and that sort of thing, is um, they have different kinds of cuts. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, like, um, uh, aside from kind of the, yeah, right, aside from the obvious uh, differentiations like, um, you know, uh, uh, a, um, uh, uh, a full blow versus a half blow, you know, you have kind of implied uh, differences, like I want you to end in a larga guard versus ending in a straighter guard. Um, sometimes Marazzo gets really colorful and he says, you know, like throw a reverso from his crown to his toes. And, yep. <laughs> um, you know, or, or you have other words that, we as Bolognese practitioners can 
you know, argue about the meaning of like, what does it mean when he says to throw a slicing reverso or <laughs> something like that? <laughs> uh, you know, but like, I mean, whatever the exact meaning is, clearly there are different kinds of cuts here. Um, and the, and I have found, I have found test cutting on tatami um, deeply valuable in that sense as well. Um, you know, kind of trying to carry through that tradition of uh, the goal is not necessarily to sever the mat. Um, on the other hand, severing the mat shouldn't be hard. You know, uh, the there, there are some people who look at test cutting as kind of uh, artificially difficult. Um, and I was raised to think of it, you know, kind of raised as a fencer, to think of it as artificially easy. That if you can't, you know, mats don't hit back. And if you cannot sever three inches of wet grass, then, you know, when it's not trying to defend itself, then your ability to do anything to a resisting large mammal is suspect, yeah. you know? Because <laughs> um, people move around, people are not made of grass, um, you know? Like, I mean, they're, they're harder targets than Tatami. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, so as, as we've kind of explored more of the more of the cuts in the Bolognese system, like what does a good half cut actually look like? Um, it's been useful to have um, both the tradition of kind of, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to sever the mat here, uh, not every cut is intended to lop off a guy's arm or split his skull in half. But on the other hand, knowing that like um, the mat still is a challenge to you, you know, um, and, and if, if the, you know, my first half cut got, I don't know, maybe an inch into the tatami. Um, and if I hadn't known that this is supposed to be an easy target, I might've been satisfied with that. Um, you know, and I don't think we should be, um, it's, uh, so it's, it's been helpful as a kind of a challenge as well to say, okay, how deep can I get into this while still throwing a half cut that I think makes sense at, you know, in, in, in Bolognese context for what a half cut is supposed to be, um, and the, and, and, and the answer keeps coming back to, you know, um, what I think of, as, what, what I was taught uh, as kind of the fundamentals of cutting, uh, staying grounded, keeping your hand centered, um, uh, keeping your hand centered with your hip rotation, the extension, and, you know, I mean, all the stuff that I talk about in cutting seminars, um, or, or, or that sort of thing, all of which I learned in a longsword context. And yet, uh, you know, continually kind of reapplying those to a side sword context just keeps producing better and better cuts. So, so there we are. Yeah, no, I mean, that's great. I mean, so I, you, you would, so we could sort of extrapolate then and sort of say, you know, go read Mike Edelson's book and 
you will probably have a pretty good framework on how to sort of develop a good cutting foundation, even with a single-handed sword. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I'm I'm happy to recommend Mike's book. Yeah. Uh, you know, to people who are interested in uh, improving their their side sword cutting mechanics. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things I really like about the side sword is that it's. Uh, so the, the title of Mike's book is Cutting with the Medieval Sword. And the side sword is still a medieval sword, even though we think of it as kind of prototypically 16th century. You know, um, for all I know, cutting with the spadroon is very different. I Like, I don't know, I've never tried. <laughs> um, but, but certainly cutting, you know, cutting with a side sword, even in the 16th century, is very much cutting with a medieval sword. Using, you know, I, I, I maintain a medieval tradition. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So um, let's kind of change gears again. Sure. But um, I want to ask you a little bit about Queen's Gambit. Um, you guys run a fantastic event, um, and you, you have annually until COVID um, in Charlotte called Queen's Gambit. Um, it is, in my opinion, and I'm course bias because you know we're neighbors but um it is one of the best bolognese events in the united states uh mostly because there aren't a lot but <laughs> i wish like for more people to understand uh more about it so tell me a little bit about um queen's gambit and your framework uh for making it such an awesome tournament sure so um so queen's gambit came about when um th there was a period around 2016 2017 um, when the Long Point people were looking at creating uh, Long Point South, which was a, a you know a HEMA tournament at Walt Disney World at the um, uh, Martial Arts Weekend, they run there uh, every year. And there was a year when the Long Point folks got a slot in that. Uh, it was televised only on ESPN three, but it was still televised. Uh, it was a you know it was a um, Walt Disney World uh, with, uh, uh, you know, a uh, hundred different martial arts events going on. Uh, and it was, it, it felt like a really big deal at the time. And there was talk of maybe possibly making that event um, the kind of uh, de facto HEMA nationals um, for the United States. And so um, as this was you know, as these kind of heady thoughts were being tossed around, uh, maybe we're going to have a national, a real national competition. Maybe it's going to be on TV. Uh, people started asking things like, well, how would we invite folks? Um, and there were a couple of HEMA leagues in existence in the U.S. at the time. Um, and so they sort of seemed like a natural framework for, well, we'll just have the winners of those leagues go to, you know, go to nationals at Disney World, um, if that ever happens. Uh, and it, it was in that context that uh, Aaron Schober and Ben Strickling and Keith Cotter Riley and I got together uh, and we said, we, if this happens, we want the Piedmont to have its own league so we can send people. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, so the, the, those are the heads of, uh, of Swordwind, of the uh, Atlanta Historical Fencing Association of Sword Carolina and Triangle Sword Guild. Um, and so we started talking about, well, what do we want our league to look like? 
because all anybody really had at the time were longsword sparring tournaments. Uh, Longpoint had a forms tournament um, and it had a cutting tournament, but those things were not really standard at the time. Um, some places had wrestling tournaments, but those weren't really standard either. Um, and so when Ben and Keith and Aaron and I got together and we decided, you know, we started talking about what do we want a Piedmont League to look like? One of the things we decided was really important to us uh, was that if we ever send anybody to nationals, they will be a well-rounded uh, hema fencer. Uh, you know, we were so not necessarily the person who's best at uh, sparring in a longsword ring, but like we genuinely want to send what we think are like the best overall martial artists in the region, even if other leagues are sending, you know, their, their best kind of competitive uh, points scorers. Um, and so we decided that we would, ha uh, we would have an overall ranking that would take into account your, uh, your, your sparring um, ability, but also a cutting uh, also your cutting ability, also your forms ability, and also your, uh, your wrestling ability. And so, um, uh, the Atlanta guys have uh, a really fabulous ring-in program, and so we said, all right, uh, you guys have responsibility for running the league ring-in tournament. Um, and the Sword Carolina guys had some ideas. They were really excited to try for a forms tournament uh, in a different format than Longpoint was doing. And so we said, all right, you guys have the responsibility for running the forms tournament. Um, and, you know... Uh, not to toot our own horn, but we were the best cutting school uh, in the region. And so we got uh, responsibility for the first, for running the league cutting tournament. And so, um, so Queen's Gambit started off as uh, a longsword only event that had longsword sparring and longsword cutting, because that was, that was what tournaments looked like at the time, <laughs> essentially. Um, but then we started doing bolognese and, um, one of the, um, we've always had a kind of a, I won't say ambivalent, but, um, the relationship that Swordwind has always had with competition, um, would also, I think comes out of, you know, uh, comes out of my NIFA DNA is that on the one hand, we are training this tradition to train the tradition, you know, uh, not necessarily. And, and if that includes things that are not, that don't have competitions, then so be it. Um, if that includes things you can't do in competition, then so be it. Um, but at the same time, um, I feel really strongly that the rise of the modern HEMA competitive scene around like, you know, the 2010, uh, 2010 or so, just has made HEMA so much better than it was before. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, not because we're trying to train to win competitions, but because competitions are just a better proving ground um, for yourself than, than not having competitions. You know, it's, it's, it's a training modality that I think should exist. Um, and so we were starting to, do bolognese and kind of hoping that other schools in the area would start 
doing more side sword stuff, which I am pleased to see they all have. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and, and so we thought, well, uh, this is going to suck unless there are competitions for it in the same way that longsword sucked until there were competitions for it. Um, you know, and so this may not be kind of, this may not be the, the end goal, but it's an important service to the community that we're gonna need to provide. Uh, and so um, it would have been, it would have been rude to call you guys up and say, hey, you guys need to run a side sword competition because <laughs> we think it's important. And so, I know. <laughs> um, and so, so we started, you know, Queen's Gambit became kind of progressively more a Bolognese tournament because we felt like it was important that Bolognese, that the that, that side sword uh, have a tournament um, to do for, you know, for, for the side sword community, what the longsword tournaments have done for the longsword community and the rapier and, you know, and, and, and other weapons as well. So we, so we started asking, all right, well, um, one of the things I always admired about Longpoint was that it was open to longswordists of any tradition or no tradition, but it was always unapologetic about being a KDF tournament that was trying to incentivize KDF fencing, um, you know, and sort of be a service first and foremost to the KDF longsword community. Um, and so, you know, and I, I thought that, I feel like you get um, not necessarily better fencing, but a more useful tournament experience out of an event that is trying, that, that knows what it's trying to be um, rather than, kind of just being an open box where people come with, uh, you know, trying to come up with a rule set that lets people kind of play in the sandbox. Um, certainly there are very successful tournaments that have that ethos. Um, I just don't find them particularly useful as a learning experience. And that's, you know, what I wanted Queen's Gambit to be. Um, and so, we started asking ourselves, well, what should a Bolognese tournament look like? And part of it, of course, was, well, there's got to be a side sword cutting tournament. Um, you know, as far as I know, we were the first side sword cutting tournament in the US, um, certainly the first on the East Coast. Um, and, and then we started asking, well, what does, you know, uh, what does Bolognese sparring really look like? Um, and that led us to a couple of things. Um, our, our traditional rule set has allowed people to get a kill off of, like, like to win the match uh, off of a hand hit, as long as it is a good enough hand hit. Um, and there are traditions where I don't think that would be appropriate, where that's not, that's not what the way they're trying to teach you to fight. Uh, but Bolognese, um, at least earnest Bolognese, is very unapologetic about, like, you cut that dude's hand off, and then whether that kills him or not, you win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so that would like so that would that was something we wanted to keep um, in our in our tournament. Um, something else we've done um, that we've gotten a fair amount of you know a, a fair amount of positive feedback about is that our we have neither a single sword tournament nor an accompanied sword tournament. Um, instead. 
uh, for anybody who hasn't been, you enter our side sword tournament uh, and you register with a companion weapon, uh, or if you're feeling particularly ballsy, no companion weapon at all. Uh, and then for any given match... That's an option? That's an option, yeah. I didn't know that. Look, I can't, I can't make you... So, uh, okay, funny story. Um, my first experience actually fighting with a side sword was at IGX in 2014. Um, and it was... I'd had a couple of Messer lessons, but it was mostly something I registered for on a lark. Um, as far as I know, they don't still do it, but I, I think I've lost you. I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you too. I think it's just the audio cut out. Okay. Um, so, a uh, funny story about the no companion weapon um, option. The um, my first experience actually fighting with a side sword was at IGX in 2014. I don't think they still have a side sword tournament, but they did that year. Um, and they and I was uh, watching one of my training, one of my schoolmates um, fight, and we'd had a couple of Messer lessons, but you know, certainly no side sword stuff, and definitely no sword and buckler. Um, you know, we kind of registered on a lark because we figured we were going to be there at the tournament and why not? Yeah. Um, and it, it, it was the most fun I have had with one hand uh, with my pants on. It was like, it was just, it, it made me, it made me think, oh my, like I am definitely doing this weapon one day. <laughs> uh, but I was watching one of my schoolmates, uh, Fence Sword and Buckler, and he was just getting taken, getting taken apart. Um, and you could tell it, it was really clear watching from the, from the sidelines. It was because he had just didn't know how to m maneuver both weapons at the same time. And at one point in the match, he just got really frustrated, put his buckler behind his back and started fencing one handed. And he's like, and the level of his fencing just went up, uh, immensely. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing, um, seeing Travis Mayotte at, uh, I forget which long point this was, but he was fencing sword and uh, rapier and dagger. Um, and he didn't really know a whole lot about rapier or dagger at the time, but he had a very strong epee background. And he fought the whole rapier and dagger match with his dagger hand just hanging by his side. And he basically just did what he knew how to do with, with, with the sword and got, you know, like did very well for himself. So, I decided, yes, you know, I'm going to make you register with a companion weapon, but I can't actually make you use it. And so if you're going to fence the whole match with your buckler behind your back, then you know what? Like, you don't actually have to take the buckler into the ring. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I want to keep talking about Queens again, but at the same time, you know, that's, that's actually a challenge that we found. Uh, teaching people initially, and maybe this is why the bull and ace tradition uses sword and buckler as a way of, like, as a, a especially the early parts mm -hmm. for the core of its foundation, is because a lot of people really do struggle with that concept of fighting with both of them together. Yeah, and we always we've always started out our students with a single-handed sword, mm -hmm. using a single-handed sword as your core, um, and whenever we take people into using companion weapons it's always a bit of a challenge for them um, especially with the buckler um, and 
you know, one of the best, even for me, when I started with Sword and Buckler, I've, I've done great with Sword and Buckler. Um, but with Sword, when I started with Sword and Buckler, I was having trouble really connecting the two and kind yeah. of understanding what the strategy was and everything like that. And Chris was like, hey, you know what? You're an amazing fencer with single-handed sword. He was like, don't even worry about the buckler. Fight like you're fighting with a single-handed sword. Yeah. We'll work on getting that coordination with the buckler built in. And I went into a tournament with that mindset. I think it was actually my first Queen's Gambit, um, or second Queen's Gambit, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't lose with the buckler. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. You know, eventually I started to add the buckler and I became more and more successful and I started competing at a much higher level because mm -hmm. I was actually starting to understand the full system. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's just really fascinating. And it was the challenge of that, though. It was the challenge of doing that at Queen's Gambit mm -hmm. um, and having to learn how to adapt and, and kind of learn how to integrate the two together that kind of inspired me to become a better sword and buckler fencer. Well, so so to take that back to the tournament, um, yeah. the um, you know at the time there weren't a lot of Bolognese programs in the U.S. Um, certainly not on the East Coast, where you know we we knew we were going to get most of our attendees. Um, but there were various people who did Messer, who did Saber, who did Sword and Buckler in you know uh, in a KDF tradition, um, or or in I thirty three. And so um, part of the reason we allowed companion weapons was because we just wanted enough people to come, <laughs> you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, at least by the end of the Bolognese, at least like by the end of the Bolognese tradition, it's pretty clear that sometimes you're going to have to fight with sword alone and you were expected to know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the kind of Bolognese flavors we added was that for any given match, there's a two thirds chance that you will fight it with your registered companion weapon. Um, and that might mean asymmetrical companion weapons. Maybe you registered with a cloak or a dagger and your opponent registered you know, with a buckler. Um, but the, uh, whatever your companion weapon was, you, know, you would get it. But there's a one third chance that both of you are going to have to fight with your swords unaccompanied uh, which isn't necessarily something that, you know, Andres Lignitzer cares about your ability to do. Yeah. Um, you know, not necessarily something that Lekuchner cares about your ability. To, well, Lekuchner doesn't necessarily care about your ability to, to use a companion weapon. Right. But we felt like as a, as a tournament that's trying to be Bolognese, um, while welcoming to everyone, this is, you know... A skill set that people should have to demonstrate, um, and so you know we we have this kind of mixed companion weapon or not companion weapon tournament um, where you need to be kind of equally uh, equally facile with, with both modes. Um, we also added a we we try we we added our polearm tournament last year or. Not last year, but uh, 2019. Yeah. Um, you know, for the same reason, because it's a part of the Bolognese tradition that was important, you know. And like we were talking earlier, this is not just a dueling tradition and not just a street fighting tradition. This is also a, 
uh, I want to be a mercenary when I grow up tradition. <laughs> and, you know, and what if somebody sticks a halberd in your hands and says, you know, Weist, go guard that door. <laughs> um, you know, and like, so obviously in a competitive context where you're, you're fighting people that you don't train with, there are kind of, uh, logistical and safety concerns behind, you know, a, a polearm tournament, especially because in my opinion, Bolognese polearms are armor agnostic. You know, I mean, certainly I, I think they do work uh, in an armored context. If you pay careful attention to the way that armored fighting works and kind of overlay that onto the instructions we're given. Yeah. Um, it seems like they're definitely targeting yeah, the armor. Exactly. Um, and of course, there's the armored poleaxe, which is quite explicit. Um, but I don't think, but but I also think that, you know, the context is not uh, all armored all the time. Sure. Like, um, you know, there's, uh, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have, uh, so much emphasis on throwing multiple partisans, if that was the case, um, because in an armored con, in a, in a fully armored context, a throw is only as useful as it allows you to close. Um, and and yet here we have you know Bolognese instructions on what if he throws another partisan, <laughs> you, you know, and we're basically just either cosplaying Hector and Achilles or we're in a skirmish context where people, you know, maybe have some armor, but not full armor and throwing may actually matter. Um, maybe the numbers are, and maybe the numbers are small enough that throwing my partisan to put down somebody on the, um, on the other side will actually turn the tide of battle and it's worth it for me to throw, throw away my spear. Whereas, you know, in a set piece battle, when, putting down one of the 5,000 people on the other side, you know, that would not make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's, you know, my, my, my 10 guys who've happened across your 10 guys, that's 10% casualties right there. And that might actually make you make the other guys run. Yeah. Um, you know, so like there's, there's less armored, possibly completely unarmored context to Bolognese pole arms. Cause we know this is something they, they did in a duel too. And as we've seen, uh, you know, they make no assumptions about what the equipment is for a duel. I mean, there's just, there's just no telling, you know, it it could be meat dresses at dawn under the old oak tree for all we know. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, so, so I wanted an unarmored polearm tournament because I thought that's, something we don't see very often. It's important to the Bolognese tradition. It's kind of unique to the Bolognese tradition. Um, And you even use a few unique Bolognese rules like Mitch Elino's two points for hitting the foot. Yes, yes we did. Um, You know, we we were trying to think, okay, how are we gonna, how, you know, how are we gonna run this? Um, Particularly because our sword rules are very, uh, they're very cut centric. Not so much because Bolognese itself is, but because we are the league cutting tournament and it, it felt appropriate that way. But as we all know, um, you cannot 
you you can cut with a partisan, but nobody, none of our authors seem to think it's going to do a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, and he even he says, you know, this is not the most. Uh, I forget the the exact words he uses, but basically, this is not the most effective thing you can do with a partisan. Yeah. Um, you know, don't get carried away by the fact that your blade is long. <laughs> yeah, I guess it gives you two cuts, right? Because I think you have one cut to the leg. That's true. You're right. You have one and, and one to the arm. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, but anyway, so we so we wanted a, a bolognese polearm tournament, uh, and we thought, well, why not score it the way uh, Manchilino has, you know, kind of drops that tantalizing hint about. The, the foot is worth two points. Um, and in fairness, you know, the foot is an important polearm target in a way that it's, it's, it's just less so with, with the sword. So that felt appropriate. Um, we were really worried the first year we ran it that uh, everyone was going to go out there and kind of murder each other with sticks. <laughs> um, but I, I really have to, and, and uh, I really have to give our competitors credit um, they, they did an excellent job of, um, you know, managing their force levels while keeping the intensity up. Um, and, you know, and honestly, one of the things I really like about fencing in the Piedmont is that, um, people, we don't have anybody in this area that I just don't like competing against. Uh, which I have found in other in other leagues, you know, like uh, I hate fighting that guy. He always hits too hard. He's, you know, always he always kind of takes it a little, a little bit extra. Um, and we had people, uh, we had people being carded for you know illegal techniques or excessive force or accidentally swinging the partisan, um, which we were especially for our inaugural tournament, you know, we just said, we're not doing that for safety reasons. Um, and everybody was very good about saying, you know what, you're right. That was, that was my bad. Um, we even had somebody, we, we even had people disqualified for, you know, repeated um, technique violations and they took it in very good grace and went on to judge, uh, you know, uh, very, very objectively and, um, all that to say, it was a smashing success, and I look forward to doing it at the next Queen's Gambit in 2021. Okay, all right. So uh, is, there a, uh, is there any sort of information coming on... Uh, wait, uh, sorry, I, I said 2021. I meant 2022. 2022. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we are not doing Queen's Gambit uh, this year. Okay. It's possible, frankly, that the vaccination um, situation will end up permitting that. Um, but we would have to make our plans sooner than we know, and we'd rather err on the side of caution. I totally understand that. It's hard to get the logistics together to get that thing going that quickly. Um, so in, um, what do you uh, anticipate the date range, or is there anywhere where people can find information about Queen's Gambit um, for the tournament in 2022? Um, the best place to look is uh the best place to look is going to be swordwind.org um and the swordwind historical swordsmanship facebook page um 
the anticipation is uh, summer early, like early to midsummer 2022. Uh, we're talking June, possibly July. Um, but of course, as you know, uh, the Triangle Sword Guild has its Raleigh Open tournament traditionally in August. Uh, so we want to try and space that out. Uh, so we're not we're not. Not, not only so we're not stepping on your toes, but so that people can, um, people don't have to take off too much time in a single single span, and they can you know attend both tournaments because you guys also run an excellent tournament which also has a bolognese or at least a side sword component, um, and I would not miss that uh, for the world either. So, um, yeah, one of the other things I just want to touch on here real quick about uh, Queen's Gambit too is mm -hmm. I think one of the it's not I don't I guess it's not really unique but one of the things that I think is one of the better aspects of the way that you guys run the tournament is you don't just give medals for um, sparring or cutting mm -hmm. you also mm -hmm. give a combined overall uh, sort of biathlon mm -hmm. uh, for you know people who do well in both and that almost seems like you're encouraging people to be much more well-rounded fencers and really mm -hmm. have that dynamic. Um, that's something that I've always really appreciated about the tournament. You know, I'd like to think it has that, uh, that effect um, because I'll tell you the, um, I, I, I th it's cutting that I think tends to lag behind in, um, in HEMA schools or lag behind um, sparring certainly. Um, you know, and, and we were hopeful that by having a cutting tournament in the region, we would kind of be passively promoting that skill um, without having to go out and harangue everybody about how they're practicing wrong. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you that from the beginning of the beginning of Queen's Gambit to the last one we ran, the level of cutting competition has risen drastically. So I'd like to think that we are, you know, it is having that effect, kind of encouraging people to explore this part of their practice. Um, the, you know, the, the guy who won uh, the longsword cutting tournament in 2019, I think bombed out in the first round of uh, the first time we ran the tournament, uh, you know, and he, he, he trained his butt off and he came back and he really... Uh, I mean, and he, and he was cutting against some very, some very strong competitors that year, um, but it, it, it mattered. Um, I've seen people, uh, you know, I've, I've seen people from schools that would only send one or, you know, maybe not even one person to a cutting tournament show up with, you know, like practically their entire, their entire, uh, their, their entire competition team shows up. Uh, not only for the sparring tournament, but for the cutting tournament too. And, you know, and, and give a better and better account of themselves year after year. Um, and so I hope it has that effect. It's certainly intended to have that effect. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it's, um, you know, and it, and it goes back to that initial conversation we had about um, Long Point South isn't a thing anymore, and there are no United States nationals. But it, it, it goes back to that conversation we had about what do we want our league to look like? And we wanted our league to be known for people that are good martial artists in their tradition, 
not just people who can do, you know, uh, the fun hitty part well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so it, it, it felt only appropriate in that circumstance to make that, you know, the highest award at the tournament, someone who does the combined best in both. Um, and it's been really fun actually seeing, you know, we've had people win those biathlon competitions for side sword and long sword who did not get first place in um, either the, the, the sparring or the cutting competition, yeah. you know, and it's, it's great to see, uh, it's great to see those people. In fact, I think one year we actually got somebody who wasn't even in the top three in one of the disciplines, um, but he was like top five uh, and did very well in the other. And uh, that, that worked out too. Uh, you know, meddling in the biathlon. Um, and that was like, that's been really great to see because you, not just because we're doing it, but because uh, when you're at the award ceremony and though, you know, and I'm handing out those medals, you can see in the room, the respect from all of their fellow fencers, like, and everyone knows that that person wasn't the best at this or the best at that necessarily but uh, they're, you know, as much, if not more worthy of respect as somebody who can do, you know, something that's, I think, closer to what we all kind of get into HEMA imagining we want to do, you know, um, not to speak for anyone else, but I think a lot of, certainly a lot of my students come to us because they want a sword experience that feels more real than they can get in a, uh, a modern Olympic fencing context. Um, which let, let me pause and say, uh, I am the last person. I actually think modern Olympic fencing is much more real swordsmanship than it gets credit for. Um, and I, I, I don't like people kind of poo pooing that as, as, as a, a mere game, but, all the same, I mean, we, we come with our fantasies and we come with our, you know, kind of what we imagine, what we imagine, the kind of swordsman we want ourselves to be one day. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that I, I think a lot of people come to HEMA because they want to feel like they have real skill with a sword. And that includes, that definitely does include, you know, successfully and artfully hitting people. Um, but it includes knowing how to use the real thing too. And, you know, I, I'm very pleased with being able to promote that side of things uh, here in the Piedmont. And I'm really pleased to have a, a you know, an actual side sword cutting competition uh, where people can use, uh, you know, people in a, a side sword or a Bolognese context can get that experience. Um, you know, not the experience of cut of of competition, but kind of promote the the experience and the knowledge of what does it feel like to operate, you know, the weapon that I am trained with. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. All right, Eric. Um, well, let's go ahead and, and uh, wrap it up there. Where can um, where can people find uh, your book, uh, The Use of Medieval Weaponry? Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can find it in 
you can uh, find it pretty much anywhere books are sold, although they may have to order it for you. Um, you can also find it uh, in the United States um, at Red Wheel Weiser, uh, who is the U.S. distributor for the book, or um, internationally at uh, Eon Books uh, 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 at Eon Books' website. Eric, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'll, I'll go ahead and put links in the show notes for everybody. Yeah, wonderful. Um, for the use of medieval weaponry and also for um, Queen's Gambit and the Swordwind website. Uh, so you can go check that out. Uh, Eric Lowe, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Always. Thank you for having me. Special thanks again to Eric Lowe for coming on and sharing his insights with us. Uh, it was a great interview. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Uh, next week's guest is going to be Moreno de Ricci, and uh, we're going to get into talking about fencing in Europe and uh, research. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends.